Welcome back About South listeners. We are in our home stretch of our final episodes of the series and we are so happy that you're joining us for this last month of programming. Today we're taking a turn from what we normally do and we are actually having our first full-length phone interview. We've never done this before, um, mostly because I have weird hang-ups about phone sound. But this is an episode that we have wanted to bring you for a long time, which is a bit of a follow-up to a season one episode. So today we're joined by Dr. Tara Bynum, who you might remember from season one when she joined us to talk about the precarious relationship that Baltimore has to the South, as well as her research on John Merritt. Today, Tara joins us to talk about another interesting figure from the past, Caesar Linden, and his life and the archives surrounding it just reveals so much about the early national period that makes us question how we know what we know and where we think the South, in Tara's words, begins and ends. And for those of you that don't already know Tara, she is the 2019-2020 Program in African American History Mellon Research Scholar at the Library Company of Philadelphia. And she's also an assistant professor at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. We are happy that she is ultimately our returning guest for this conversation. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. We are here this morning with returning guest, one of our first returning solo guests, Tara Bynum, who you might remember from season one when we talked to her about John Merritt. And she is back. We had wanted to do this follow-up episode with her for a long time, and now that we're at the end of the season, that we have always said that we would not do phone interviews in our last several episodes, we are breaking all of our own rules, and we are on the phone with Tara Bynum, live from Baltimore, and she is going to tell us this incredible story about Caesar Linden's pig roast, cookout, barbecue. We're going to know exactly what to call it, everything about it, and just why Caesar Linden was this amazing man who really makes us question what we thought we knew about the early period and particularly where the South is. So, Tara, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm super excited to be here, and I can't even contain how excited I am to talk about Caesar Linden, his pig growth, and his account book, and the 18th century world in which he lived. So let's do this. Let's do this. Okay, so first of all, who was Caesar Linden? So Caesar Linden is an enslaved man born on an uncertain date in the 18th century who dies in about 1794 or so. He lives in Newport, Rhode Island, from what I can tell, the majority of his life. And he is he is the records keeper, the accountant for... Uh, 
what appears to be like a, a store-related business in Newport, Rhode Island. His master is the the colonial um, the colonial clerk for the Rhode Island General Assembly, or I should say, the clerk for the colonial Rhode Island General Assembly. His name is Josiah Linden, and Caesar Linden has this like, 30, 37 or so page account book at the Rhode Island Historical Society that has kind of been talked about. It's actually fairly well-known among the, the staff, the librarians and the archivists at the Rhode Island Historical Society, but it hasn't actually had a whole lot written about it. And what you find in his account book is that he is selling goods like copy, copywriting to Newport, Newport like, cast of characters, enslaved people, free people, slave traders, merchants. It's, it's an amazing array of Newport's most notable, notable people. And it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing document for that reason. So he sells bushels of beets. He sells pigs. He sells, like I said before, copy editing, um, copy editing, copywriting services. So if you are, I don't know, think a ship captain and you want something, something written up, Caesar Linden is who you pay to to do that for. For example, I mean it's 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 amazing how many pigs he sells. Leather breeches is another thing. Silver buckles. It's an amazing catalog and inventory of goods sold and services sold too. And how does he come to hold this position in terms of? I mean, it sounds like quite a bit of economic power is flowing, like, through his, essentially, like, company. How does he get to this point in this world? So I think that that is one of the questions that I'm commonly asked. And it's, it's what I like to think of as, you know, one of the how questions. Like, how is this possible? And... In the, in the way that the, the library speaks and the way that the special collections talk back, I'm not entirely sure how. I just know that know what is. You know, I know that he is the one that is bartering goods and services, like I said, in order to, to sell and receive, and he documents this. He's got his debits on the left, credits on the right. How he comes to do it, is not entirely clear. I also don't know uh, how he how he stores the the vast majority of these goods that he's selling because they're the quantities are pretty large. I mean, even just thinking about the number of pigs he sells, like pigs are big, but he's selling them. And I, I he doesn't he doesn't anticipate that I want to know answers to these questions. So he doesn't say, "Oh, BT Dubs." I keep my pigs in wharf number five on on the on the edge of of Newport, so I don't actually have the answer in any robust way to that question. What I can infer in part is that his his master Josiah Linden is a clerk for the general assembly, so you know i I wonder if the the skills that would help. Josiah Linden do his job better are skills that he has transferred to to Caesar. 
who is both literate, obviously, and numerate as well. Because he can add up those numbers. I mean, it's a book full, full of numbers, which is also really interesting. I think sometimes people default to the idea that enslaved labor would, by some definition, be always kind of unskilled. And in fact, that is just the opposite of the reality, which is people have highly skilled jobs to assist with a vast array of industries and businesses. And so that he's a really good example of someone who has a lot of skills and those skills are helping him have this, I don't know, is it a I don't really know if a side business makes that that phrase does not feel right if we're talking about enslavement because it makes it sound like being enslaved is his first business and that that I'm not comfortable with that. But there's something just about like okay, so here's this network that he's created. He's doing all of these things and this was just like part of the world. It wasn't like everyone was like, "Oh, look at Caesar Linden doing all of these things. Let me write my like biography of him or something, right? So are you saying that's just... Yeah. It's just like a part of the world that we don't quite have the language or apparatus to totally... We know this is happening, but like how it's happening and where, that's not where the critical conversation has been. It's not. And I think that that what has been interesting for me to realize, in part by way of, of having the conversations that introduced me to... Caesar Linden, I think that what struck me was that he is someone who is, is literate and numerate and is a part of, as Christy Clark Kujara says, the, the business of, of slavery. And slavery's business is not just him seeking freedom. Freedom doesn't come up at all, which is what we're often looking for. Instead, he is, he is selling in large quantities goods that end up on ships that are participating in the slave trade. So he is a part of the business of slavery, not only as an enslaved person, but also as a salesman, shopkeeper, accountant, who is, who is making the wheels of this business turn in, in ways that I, I don't think that we are ready to acknowledge or able to acknowledge just yet. And I think I also want to make clear two things. One, that Caesar Linden is not unique or exceptional necessarily. And there are other enslaved persons who are accountants as well. So if I think about Jupiter Hammond, who also serves in that capacity, if I think about um, Benjamin Banneker, who may not actually be enslaved, but is also a black person, he, he also keeps a, a kind of account book. There was Wheatley in her correspondence with Uber Tanner, sends letters where she, too, is keeping the accounts of how many books Tanner is, Tanner is selling on her behalf and, and talking about the exchange of, of money for books. So I think that what Caesar Linden reminds me of, certainly, is that he, he is an example, but he is not necessarily a unique example. And, and I wonder how many other, other folks are, are, doing, are doing this work, and we're just not, not necessarily looking for, 
an accountant or not necessarily looking for um, looking for these forms of numeracy in our pursuit, especially since I think there's so much value placed on the pursuit of freedom. The other thing that I think is is noteworthy about the fact that he is in this business of slavery is that Newport, Rhode Island in the 18th century, before the start of the revolution, is the seat of an Anglophone American slave trading. It's, it's the, the, the hub of it. So, you know, I, I, I return to um, this question that, that you and I have talked about before, like where does the South begin? And whenever I make mention of that, let's say in my classroom, especially my classroom in, in Massachusetts, I say that Newport, Rhode Island is the hub of slave trading. They're like, it's not Mississippi, it's not Georgia, it's not Louisiana. Like, in the 18th century before the Revolutionary War, absolutely not. You know, um, and I think that that is, is also interesting to note as, as we think about Caesar Linden's travels. His account book goes from about 1761 to 1771. So it, it, he is kind of chronicling in, in these line items and, and English currency, pounds, shillings, and pence, the, the, really the impact of those taxes and tariffs that ultimately lead to the Revolutionary War. He's kind of chronicling that impact on, on his own life as the shopkeeper who is trading in international goods who's using paper, for example. So I think that, too, is also interesting to imagine. You know, so often we hear about the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and those, those acts that prompt the, the, the protests on the part of like, patriot rebels. And I don't know that we have in mind a black man, and yet Caesar Linden is that black man who is, you know, absolutely directly impacted by by those tariffs as well. Oh, God. Okay, so this is really interesting. So the picture you're setting up is that Newport, Rhode Island is, on the one hand, okay, if I imagine Newport, Rhode Island in the 18th century, like your students, I'm thinking, this is, you know, I don't know, um, this, you're right, like this hub of Anglo-America, where all of this, like, John Adams-esque colonialism is happening with people, like, getting fired up and thinking about things, and that's, like, uber United States America, and then I think, okay, well, a port like Charleston is, okay, that's like the South, right? And I say this even, mm-hmm. even as someone relatively educated in these things, I imagine something very different in Newport than I do in Charleston during this era. And one default in my mind to kind of like 1776 mythology. And the other one mm-hmm. for me is definitely, like, part of this early South enslavement economy. But what you're suggesting is, like, we have to also put a place like Newport 
it is just as implicated as Charleston. And this is in fact the entire nation in the 18th century. And then at the center of this is a black entrepreneur, shopkeeper, completely invested in this trade. And that there are probably many people like Lyndon engaging in this. And if we sort of like, put all of this together, this could really change how we think about region and this period. I, I think you're right. I think like, at the very least, Caesar Linden makes slavery's business messier than we are, than, than we know to talk about. So I'm not necessarily suggesting that, that Caesar Linden is absolutely pro-slavery in some way. But I do think that Caesar Linden is a part of what he understands to be a relatively normal economy. So the fact that he is trading with Aaron Lopez and, and Christopher Champlin, two of the biggest Newport, Rhode Island slave traders, is not necessarily abnormal for him. They're just presumably men who live in Newport who need something from him, so he sells, sells them the goods, that, the goods that they need. And that's not to say that Lyndon doesn't have a critique. That critique doesn't show up in this account book necessarily. But I think that what, what fascinates me, what drives my curiosity about Lyndon is the, the fact that if there is a critique on the part of Lyndon of slavery, there's also a participation in its business nonetheless. And so how do we as folks who are far removed from Lyndon's time period really begin to construct that complexity and begin to think about, begin to think about in real ways, like how he is able to, to navigate this, this, this world. I mean, Newport has, I think, 24 or so rum distilleries. You know, Newport is, is the hub of, of rum making and rum is the currency of the slave trade at the time. So in thinking about Charleston, a Newport helped fund the ships that make their way to Charleston and ultimately back to Newport in, you know, what we know as the triangular trade. Like it's, it's a complex system that I think that in our, in our desire to understand the economics of it, we haven't necessarily put black people at the, we haven't put black people at the in the mix of that action as as people who are also buying and selling things, not just being bought and sold. Everyone alive at every given moment is completely called up with the economy that they're living in, right? It's Absolutely. like, yes, I can critique the system, and yes, I also need to go get my toilet paper from Target or something, right? And it's Absolutely. like my, me buying wear toilet clothes. paper does not negate my critique of capitalism. But then at the same time, like if people go back to the early period and are only looking for black people as, like you said, like bought and sold or as products, then you're also missing this whole other kind of experience of life that may tell us a lot about just how people's lives were lived as human beings. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's amazing about the account book as well that is, you know, 18th century account books 
are certainly numbers driven in ways that are both familiar and un- unfamiliar. And they're all, they also at times function as something that we might consider diaries as well. So interspersed in these line items of, of goods and services and numbers and such, Susan Linden talks about painting his girlfriend's, painting his girlfriend's bedchamber white and blue. He ultimately marries her, and he makes note of of their wedding. He talks about he he talks about how his wife and her friend go go to Bristol, Rhode Island, on a day's trip for reasons that are not entirely clear. So I think that what what he does that I really appreciate, even though he could not have anticipated my need for it, is offer that humanity that, that you're that you're talking about it's it's a glimpse into you know the everydayness of of Newport the everydayness of an enslaved man's life and it's an everydayness that doesn't have those those key features that we know to anticipate in let's say Frederick Douglass's slave narrative you know I think the form that we have Lyndon's writing in doesn't doesn't necessarily make room for that. And I think that that, that, that that invites new ways of thinking. So tell us about this pig roast. Um, oh my goodness! Do we know when it was? What was served? People are getting together. Who was there? Um, how often did this happen? Tell us everything you know. Um, it is certainly finally here in Atlanta, kind of the end of summer. But uh, tell us what time of year this happened and everything you know about this event. So, Caesar Linden gathers a group of. I believe it's eight friends to to go from Newport, Rhode Island, to Portsmouth, just up the way. It's about eight miles present day on a road. Just to just to, to give listeners some bearing, and it's August twelfth to Tuesday, seventeen sixty six, and. He does have an entire menu, and he makes note of who takes this pleasant ride out to Portsmouth. There's Boston Vose, Zingle Stevens, Phyllis Linden, Neptune Sisson and his, and his wife, Prince Thurston and his wife, and Sarah Searing, who is the girlfriend of... Caesar Linden at the time, but the girlfriend that will become his wife. And my, I'm deeply amused by his list of necessaries that were bought to basically ensure that they had a good time. So there's a pig to roast. There's so much paid for a house room. There's wine, bread, rum, green corn, lime for punch, sugar, butter, tea, coffee, and a pint of rum for killing the pig. And the, the 
what he what he has purchased is is listed on the left, and how much it costs is on the right. And I think what 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 gets me, and it took me a while to kind of sift through, was thinking about like, the logistics of his day. So we've got nine adults who are going from Newport to Portsmouth. I'm not entirely clear if the ride is something horse driven or if it's something boat driven. Um, but they also have to take this pig with them. It's not entirely clear either how big the pig is, but after doing some sleuthing, pigs to roast are anywhere from 20 to 200 pounds, which is amazing to think about. So if I think for a moment about a 20-pound pig, on the one hand, I can imagine that grown-ups could potentially eat that much, but... If we, we think that, that burgers, for example, are measured in quarter pounds, like eating a whole pound might be a, could, be, could be a lot. So to, to think about a 20-pound pig at the smallest and a 200-pound pig, my, my thought is that they are, in fact, meeting people at Portsmouth who will share in this pig feast. He doesn't name those people that they're meeting in Portsmouth, but I think just trying to imagine how they eat this pig lets me know that there must have been more people just given the sheer size of roasting pigs. And then what also is interesting is what, what has to be imported for him to make use of. So that's wine, that's rum, that's lime, that's sugar, that's tea, that's coffee, the vast majority of his list are imported goods and imported goods at a time when the British are trying to enact these taxes and tariffs on imported goods. So the the party reads to me as a very, a very decadent one. I had somebody ask where, like where are the vegetables? Like this isn't a vegetable party. This is a, this is a, this is a party where, most of the the menu is devoted to rum punch, wine, and sugary things that I imagine will go into the rum punch as well, and pigs, of course. So it, it's meant to be a celebration for sure. And we also don't know if they were meeting people, he wouldn't have necessarily listed what other people might have brought, right? Uh, that's true. Like, that doesn't show up. You know? So he... He lists what he would have taken out of his own stores. Do you know how long they stayed? Did they just go for the day? Or did so was this a, a weekend affair? So or a Tuesday, it, a midweek affair? It's, it's not entirely clear how long they stay, but they must stay because he has a line item for a room that they pay for. Oh, yeah. So they have to stay. So they have to stay. And the other thing is, is that they are all couples, except for Boston Bose. Boston Boston Bose doesn't have anybody go with him. But that also just helps me understand that Boston is probably meeting somebody in Portsmouth. Boston is a sailor. I'm sure Boston could figure it out. It's just that much more interesting to think about the fact that this is a, a, it's a pig roast. A barbecue, I liked all those words that you said before. 
and it's a couple's trip. So, and they rent a room. You know, so it just seems like we can put all the pieces together for what kind of what kind of day and evening they plan they plan to have. And I think it, it also works to disrupt our expectations for what what enslaved people are allowed to do because everybody on this list is enslaved. It is remarkable because it's obviously this is obviously a party. I mean, this is obviously a seriously, like you said, couple time, let's bring the rum and wine, we're going to roast a pig. I mean, this is a celebration. Yeah. And it makes me happy to think about them having a good time. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, is they're having a good time, and there are no white people on this list. They're, no, they're why would just, you take a white person on this trip? Obviously, exactly. and, you wouldn't. And I will say that, that my, my research interests are driven by looking for those places where, where black people are not necessarily thinking that hard about white people. And I think that that is part of the power of this story is that that Stephen Linden is not outside of of slavery, its business, its economy, et cetera. And he doesn't he doesn't presumably he he is not necessarily looking to be outside of that. And and yet there's this moment, this opportunity where Linden is 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 putting together a barbecue. And a barbecue for other black people, at the very least, it's hard to know who is who is at Portsmouth waiting for the pig and the rum and the wine and the butter to come through. But you know, I, I think that 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 is part of the part of my intrigue and and also the lesson of this pig roast for me is that there 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 are still so many places, fights, conversations that black people are having amongst themselves that are not necessarily about engaging white people or thinking about white people. I'd like to hear you say just a bit more about this question that you have gone back and forth about, about where does the South begin and end? Mm-hmm. I, so, so I think about it in a, in a couple different ways. So I think for for my students in particular, the South is is slaveholding. The North is free. So the the catch, of course, is that whenever I show them the pig roast receipt, which I'm inclined to do, inevitably when I explain it out after I get them to see, think, and wonder about it, there's there's a moment of like. Wait, there was slavery in Rhode Island? Absolutely, it's it's a thing. I, the the wealthiest the wealthiest slave traders traders in the nation <laughs> are from Rhode Island. So there's always that moment of pause, and you know it 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 absolutely troubles the 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 I, I, the idea of like what constitutes the South. Does that make the North Southern? Does it does it then mean that 
yeah, what 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 then does it, it it mean? I also think too about the the idea that the British issue a proclamation that encourages enslaved folks to leave leave their their masters and to to join the British in this fight against the the patriot rebels. And so many do, and when the British ultimately lose the war, they end up going to Nova Scotia because the British have promised have promised land economic opportunity in Nova Scotia. Now something different than that happens. But we think about where where freedom ends up being. Freedom is not in Massachusetts in seventeen eighty three. Freedom is in Nova Scotia in Canada. So if we think about, if we think in these kind of simplistic terms that, that we, we end up learning initially, a, the entirety of the U- United States is south of Canada. And the entirety of the United States is still so much committed to slavery in a way that it's not that Canada isn't committed to slavery. Canada just ends up having a different relationship to it as evidenced by the possibility of Nova Scotia, which is supposed to offer a free, a, a free settlement for black people to kind of start their own new nation. Like I said, that's not exactly what happens, but for a moment the possibility is there. And I think in that way, Newport does become southern in relation to Nova Scotia. It becomes southern in the way that we imagine its commitment to slavery and even Rhode Island's support of slavery if we think about the formation of the Constitution and who is valuing, uh, who, who, is, who is valuing the need for slavery in the makings of the U.S. Rhode Island is, is a part of that conversation. So I think that that on the one hand, do Newport, Rhode Island and Charleston look the same and have the same set of concerns? Not necessarily, but what they share for sure is a commitment to slavery. And I think in that way, you know, the, what constitutes the South and the North just does not, not become so fixed, you know, I think it, it has some malleability. And at the very least, it becomes relative. So far, the 3,000 or so black women, men, and children who go to Nova Scotia to, to find freedom, if, if, we ask them, if we ask them where the South is, they may, they may not default to, to, to Georgia, they, they may default to Boston. They may default to Newport. They may default to so many of the, the coastal cities along what would become the U.S. Thank you for listening this week, and a huge thank you to Dr. Tara Bynum for joining us for this conversation. 
Her research on Caesar Linden would not have been possible without the generous support of the Program in African American History at the Library Company of Philadelphia, the Hodgson Trust at Washington College, and the John Carter Brown Library. Her work has also been made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Antiquarian Society, and Rutgers University. And ultimately, she is very grateful to the Rhode Island Historical Society where Lyndon's account book is archived. About South is brought to you from Gresham Park, Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Audra Danso are my co-producers and Jessica Parker joins us this season as a new producer. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be back next week with another wonderful final episode, and we look forward to talking to you then. Take care. <laughs>